Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. I am extremely excited to have with us our guest today, and that is Dr. Andrew Young. For those of you who don't know Dr. Young, he has been a professor of psychology and counseling at Lubbock Christian University in Texas since 1996 and a negotiator and psychological consultant with Lubbock Police Department SWAT team since 2000. He's also the head of LPD's Victim Services Unit and is the director of the department's Critical Incident Stress Management Team. He's been on the negotiation team at the Lubbock County Sheriff's Office since 2008 and is a member of the Texas Department of Public Safety or Texas Rangers and has recently been asked to serve as a psychological consultant on the Amarillo Police Department's negotiating team. He has written a book, mostly stories about his work as a crisis counselor and hostage negotiator at LPD called Fight or Flight Negotiating Crisis on the Frontline and has been published in numerous academic and professional publications. I am very excited to bring this talk with you today. I hope you're ready for the breakdown with Dr. Andy Young. So Andy, thanks for joining us today. I know you're extremely busy. I just want to say thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast here today. This is an interview I've been very excited about for the last couple of weeks. Um, It's a topic that I've been extremely excited to talk to you about specifically um, due to your knowledge and expertise. So why don't you just, before we get started, let everybody know a little bit about who you are and what you do. I really appreciate being here and uh, look forward to our conversation. Uh, I have been a professor at a local university in Texas, in Lubbock, for about 24 years. And in 2000, I started working with my local police department. Started out doing on-scene crisis counseling at the request of patrol officers and soon after was asked to join the hostage negotiating team with that same department and have been a hostage negotiator for the last 19 years. About 2008, I was asked to join the negotiating team at the county sheriff's office, so I started doing that. And about two years ago, the state troopers in my area asked me to join their team. So I started doing that. And from all of that, it's quite clear I'm a geek for hostage negotiating. The reason why I first contacted you a little bit back, um, because I came across your book, Fight or Flight, Negotiating Crisis on the Front Line. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the podcast. But what initially got you into wanting to work with the police forces? I mean, I understand that you said you started out um, on the, uh, academic psychology side of things. And then you kind of, you must've had, uh, something that happened that got you into, into the policing area. What, what was that? What was that thing that brought you into it? Well, I was going to church, minding my own business and the chief of police, uh, his secretary went to the same church and she approached me one day and said, I heard Andy that you're working on your, uh, counseling degree. And the chief of police wants to start a program at our police department. He is very tired of sending police officers to the same domestic disturbance call over and over again. And really, there's no arrestable offense. There's nothing the police can do. But they keep getting tied up with these calls. And what the chief would like to do is get some of you mental health professional types on scene and in the house and help these people not have to call the police anymore. So his officers can get back out on the street and do policing things, and you guys can do your counseling thing, and that'll help everybody involved. Would you like to come work with the police department and become part of our on-scene crisis counseling unit? And that sounded awesome to me, so I said yes. Well, it's as simple as that. Hey, just one day get a phone call, and then boom, all of a sudden you're into policing. That's a, that's a 
<laughs> yeah, it's a great story. So what was the transition like for you going from the academic applied psychology to utilizing that as a crisis and hostage negotiating expert? Uh, it was an odd journey. I would say it started when I was teaching a general psych class and a paramedic in the class wrote a paper about being a paramedic. And I asked him just on the whim on the last day of class after the final, hey, do you let people do ride-alongs? And he said yes. And so I started getting the uh, taste of emergency services uh, riding in the back of an ambulance. And then from there, he started working with the air ambulance service in my area. So I started doing that. And, you know, pretty quickly I saw that uh, a lot of these emergency calls involve family members and loved ones who are grieving, who are upset, uh, who feel like their lives are out of control. And my background in counseling fit very well with what was going on on scene. So it didn't seem like a, um, a big leap from the counseling I do for people in my office and the counseling that I started doing out there on the street, uh, more so with the police department with that victim services program, and uh, even a little bit, it seems to, um, what's the word, dovetail well with hostage negotiating. So all that to say, it didn't seem like a big leap at the time, but looking back at it, uh, yeah, doing counseling in an office and doing crisis counseling with the police department are a, a bit different. Now, just for clarification, are you uh, are you a sworn peace officer yourself, or how, how does that uh, relationship work with, between you and the department? Yeah, I am not a sworn police officer. Uh, I do have a shirt that lets everybody on scene know uh, this guy is with the police department. And after running with the negotiators for a while, I got a ballistic helmet and a bulletproof vest and some other gear. So like I said, I'm a geek for the negotiating and I love all the gear that comes with it, but I am not a police officer. Um, I bring to the situation, my background in psychology and counseling and work alongside police officers. And we try to work together to deal with the situation at hand. Yeah. So when I was researching you and, and all these things that you've done and put out um, and training and, and teaching and instructing at these conferences all around uh, the U.S. and the world. One of the things and one of the terms that I, I feel like you've almost coined is uh, that of a psychological consultant. Now, mm -hmm. in, my, in my understanding of it, and it's very limited, um, but from what I drew from that was basically you're there to assist with determining methodologies, communication, uh, phrasing, tactics, and then assessing for critical incidents or escalations of violence and kind of working hand in hand with the negotiators, uh, the SWAT teams or the on-scene officers um, and determining best courses of action. Is that kind of close to what it is or am I off? Oh. Yes. No, that is a great summary. Oh, okay, great. Uh, I was just thinking of an example. Uh, we had a call out recently, a gentleman with a history of a psychotic disorder uh, who also took a bunch of meth. Uh, started uh, shooting in his apartment, started uh, firing his pistol, scared everybody away. Of course, the police get called, and then the SWAT team, and, and we get called. And uh, my role in that was to listen to what this schizophrenic man on meth was saying 
and help the negotiator respond well to this guy in an effort to, um, I guess, influence him into not hurting more people and letting the police take him to the hospital and get him some help. And at one point, it seemed like the negotiations were going well, and it seemed like he was uh, coming down from his uh, meth-induced uh, behavior. And the SWAT com- uh, commander asked me, uh, Andy, how do you think this is going to go? And I said, well, even though we have reason to be hopeful because the meth is wearing off, I don't think the schizophrenia is going to wear off. And so I think we're going to be at this for a while longer, and we need to be ready for anything. And about, I'd say, 10 minutes later, uh, he crawled up into his attic crawl space and tried to crawl out of the apartment through the attic. But unfortunately, he fell through the ceiling and almost landed in the laps of the SWAT team. But happily, he was taken into custody and we took him to the hospital. Okay, well, that's a good end to that story. That almost sounds, almost sounds uh, Hollywood-esque in the, uh, in the conclusion to that. And, and actually, you know what, on that topic, that actually just brings something to the top of my mind here is with your experience and your almost 20 years of experience doing this, I'm sure you've come across some fallacies or witness fallacies that are created by Hollywood when it comes to crisis negotiation, hostage negotiation, tactics and stuff like that. Is there anything that kind of stands out to you, the things that really grind your gears when you see things on TV or in movies and you're like, they're just way out to lunch? Well, the first thing is, uh, you know, something bad happens and all of a sudden there's one negotiator on the phone with the bad guy. And in real life, you know, it takes us time to get there. And it's not just one of us. It is a team. Uh, There are 20 negotiators on the team uh, that we have at the Lovett Police Department. And we work as a team to be one guy on the phone trying to do everything is quite impossible. And, uh... I mean, it makes sense Hollywood would do it that way, but really it's a team effort. Um, and it takes us a little while to get there and get set up and get our background and make that first phone call. Uh, and then there's, of course, you know, Hollywood really can't depict a 15-hour standoff very well. And they can't depict how physically draining it is to try to talk to someone who is in a crisis state. Um they rather kind of hype it up with gunfire and, you know, all sorts of yelling and arguing when really the thing we're trying to do is uh, slow things down, calm things down and talk to this person like they're a person. Yeah. One thing I've noticed um, in speaking with law enforcement officers, negotiators, um, and then witnessing things on, you know, when you see them on TV or in movies, it seems like a lot of the stuff depicted is always a, almost a hostage negotiation or a hostage situation where, you know, it's either a failed bank robbery or a home invasion, and then there's a barricaded subject hostages. Where in, in reality, my understanding is that is almost the rarity. And a lot of your callouts have to do with people in mental distress. It's the lone subject, whether they're barricaded or not inside. And a lot of it is being able to communicate with that one individual and kind of talk them out of their situation. Is, is that Does that hold true for you guys down there? Yeah, that's very much the case. I think in my 20 years, I could probably count on one or two hands how many times I've responded to a hostage situation, but a suicidal subject, someone wanting to jump off a bridge, someone in a mental health crisis who's barricaded himself in his bedroom, or maybe a domestic dispute that has gone awry, 
uh, and now there's one person left in the house who's drunk and has been shooting his uh, pistol. That is more the norm for us. I'm assuming you have thousands of stories. Um, I'm I know uh, in speaking with you earlier that you know you guys stay fairly busy. With all of that, are there any situations that stand out to you, um, whether they be from good outcomes or bad outcomes? Are there any situations that stick out to you that you feel that you learned something from or kind of changed the way that you dealt with situations? Well, you know, uh, the real tough calls are usually the first ones that come to mind. Uh, so I guess I'll start there. Uh, I had a call maybe five years ago where there was a man in a house. Uh, he was high on meth. He was holed up in a closet armed with a machete. The patrol officers showed up and they found him. And so they drew their weapons and they were trying to talk him into coming out of the closet uh, without the machete in his hand. Uh, pretty soon I and another negotiator arrived and uh, I tried to talk to this man and it was pretty clear to all of us pretty quick that he was wanting to um, initiate suicide by cop. And he told me, I am trying to get up my courage for uh, making you guys shoot me. And so for 10 or 15 minutes, I tried to talk him out of it. And it was interesting. Uh, every time it seemed like I was starting to make some ground, he would get angry and frustrated with me because I was talking him out of what he wanted to do. Um, but I gave it my best effort. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't end well. And that was a difficult call for all of us. About, I'd say, a year later, we got another call, suicidal subject, armed with a knife, on meth, in his closet. And all of us who were there at the last call were all kind of, wow, this is amazing that we're having another one of these. And uh, when we got there, both on the SWAT side and on the negotiator side, we learned a lot from my call and employed it on this second call. We made it very hard for that man to run out of the closet and get anywhere near us. One of the SWAT guys took a couch and put it into the room and put a bunch of pillows and a whole bunch of other stuff in there so this, that if this guy did come run out, uh, he really couldn't get very far very fast. Uh, instead of standing in the room with him, talking to him, we were on the outside of the room talking to him through a window. Uh, we had lots of um, less lethal munitions with us, things to try and hurt him but not kill him in order to you know, try and knock the uh, knife out of his hand. And uh, we also tried to um, engage his uh, family um, in the process because he was trying to call them and Anyway, we had negotiators with the family members trying to coach them. And all that to say, we learned a lot from my call that went very bad that we employed in this call, and it turned out very well. Thank you for sharing that story. Mm -hmm. A few things that came to mind. One uh, was you had kind of brought up the idea of suicide by cop. Yes. That's, some, that's a, it's a very difficult subject, especially for officers that are that deal with those situations. So two things on that point. Um, and the first one is going to be what I mentioned to you previous before we started recording. There was a, a talk that you gave early last year at a hostage negotiator conference where you talked about establishing your kill line um, and weighing the risks of when is, when is it time to disengage? Maybe can you speak to that a little bit? 
Uh, certainly. The first thing that comes to mind is a SWAT call out we had a number of years ago. A man got into a, a domestic dispute with his wife. He got out a pistol, squeezed off a couple rounds into the ceiling. Everybody in the house left. They called police. Police called SWAT and us. We showed up and we um, we talked with the family at length about how to handle this situation. And we tried, of course, to make contact with the man and we were unsuccessful. Uh, the family was telling us he has a history of falling asleep when he's drunk and he wakes up the next day and everything's fine. And so really, there's no reason for the police to press the issue here. Why don't we just leave a patrol car on scene? Everybody go home. The family's safe. They'll go stay somewhere else and let the family take care of it tomorrow. They have our phone numbers. They can give us a call if something's difficult. And so in that case, instead of making a big show of force out of it, we packed up and we went home and we were available to the family if they needed us. But it was pretty clear from the situation and it turned out, you know, in hindsight to be the right call to not press the issue, even though there was, um, you know, a problem to start with when the first call to police was made. And in the instance of the uh, kill line that you mentioned, um, you know, one of the big things right now is teaching police officers the skills to de-escalate a situation, and typically it's called crisis intervention training for police officers, or CIT for short. Uh, it's a de-escalation training, and it's uh, kind of the um, hot topic right now. And at my department, it was uh, something that they were putting all the patrol officers through, but they let me do a about two or three hour scenario-based training with those officers after they finish their crisis intervention and de-escalation training. And the purpose of that training that I did was to help remind the officers that there may be instances where you can de-escalate somebody, where you can talk somebody down, where you could even walk away. But there are other instances where the harm to the public or to the officer or even the individual themselves is so great that you can't walk away and there are instances where you can't talk someone down either. And so how do you balance de-escalation with officer safety and the safety of the public? So I put these officers through a very simple scenario-based training. They were confronted with a man standing in a field with a pistol to his head who was not threatening anybody else, who was not threatening the officer, uh, but who was considering killing himself. And we put the officer through that scenario-based training so that officer can, could consider, is this a situation where I can try and de-escalate and help this person? Or is this a situation where the risk to the officer is so high that I need to do something for my own safety? And you could watch the officer almost suffer with the decision because the scenario was built in such a way to make it very difficult uh, to... Um, talk to the man and stay safe at the same time. With that scenario, did you have, uh, was it a solo officer engaging the subject or was it a, a partner or how did that kind of play out? Yeah, I tried to make this situation as difficult as possible. So as the officer and I were walking up to the starting line of the scenario, I would give, his, give him the briefing. Uh, it's a suicidal subject. He's standing in a field. He's possibly armed with a pistol, and he's a veteran. 
the contrived part of this scenario is you have no backup. You have no um, less lethal, you know, no taser, no beanbag shotgun. You have no cover. You have no concealment. You have no backup. It's just you and this guy. What are you going to do? Ready, go. You don't make it easy on these guys. <laughs> no. Uh, and I, uh, because I'm a horrible person, I uh, instructed the role player in such a way as to make him very difficult to have to shoot. And by that, I mean, if this guy was mean and he had just killed a bunch of children and he's threatening to kill everybody and he's a horrible person, you know, in that situation, sometimes it's a clearer decision. You know what? I may have to shoot this guy. But when you have a veteran who has a gun to his head and he's pleading with the officer to help him, And he's telling the officer, I respect you. I respect what you're doing. I just want to kill myself. It makes him very difficult uh, to have to stop. Uh, So, yeah, I I was horrible in the way I built this scenario. Yeah, the first thing that jumped to my mind when you gave the scenario was, well, typically, um, in my understanding, you know, you'd have a cover officer person communicating doesn't necessarily have to have their weapon drawn and pointed at the subject so that you don't create that hostility immediately right but in your situation or in the scenario that you've developed they don't have that option so what was the what was the common response from the officer in the scenario with their weapon was that was that a a point of contention um during the scenario training uh well it's a (laughs) the point of contention with each officer was this scenario is horrible i hate you (laughs) Uh, but you could see the officer having a lot of cognitive dissonance and it was in a number of forms and it started with when do I pull out my weapon do I need to pull out my weapon and if I do pull it out how do I keep a good sight picture how do I keep my weapon on this subject but also try and de-escalate them and negotiate with them and do two very different and very difficult jobs at the same time. And it is quite impossible. Well, remind me never to come and do training with you then. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, uh, you, you don't want me to set up your scenarios. And, you know, early on, they used to have me uh, be the role player in negotiator training. I'd be the angry bank robber taking hostages, or I'd be the schizophrenic or whatever. And they're just like, no, this, this is horrible. Somebody else be the role player. Fire Andy. This is horrid. horrid. I'm a huge proponent of scenario-based training and reality-based training. And for the simple fact that what you've just alluded to here is that training should be made harder than real-life scenarios so that the officers understand and if they can draw back to their training in a real scenario and be like, oh, you know what? This is kind of a step back from what we had to do, then it, it should make their lives and their jobs a little bit easier. Is that kind of the context that you went with? Yeah, that was my thinking. And, you know, after we did this scenario based training with the officer, we usually did it in groups of 10 or 15, and we would debrief it all together afterwards. And one of the things that I would say to them is, I want you to have this experience ahead of time. So if you have anything near it out in the real world, you'll have already thought through it in some regard, and your OODA loop will have this in it, so maybe you can make a better, quicker decision when it's the real thing. Now, for those for those listening who are brand new to uh, military and uh, police lingo, uh, OODA loop, 
means observe, orient, decide, and act. I think that's correct. Yes, sir. And uh, it's it's a process that's um, brought up in training time and time again in your thought process and dealing with certain scenarios. So if you guys ever hear that when you're out and about or in training, um, that's what that refers to. So Andy, we've talked about now weighing the risks when it comes to dealing with one officer, one subject scenarios. And you talked about a scenario, um, a real call that you had where things didn't go so well with the subject at the end. When calls go wrong, when officers, whether it, whether it be a member of the negotiation team, the SWAT team, or in a lot of cases, when there's no time for the negotiation team to respond and the officer from start to finish is just a couple minutes and it has a bad outcome of that scenario, what what are some things that officers can do to cope with those situations and, you know, the feelings of failure, the feeling that what I could have done something differently that would have resulted in a better outcome? What are what are some challenges around that? And then what are some things that officers can use to to combat those feelings and thoughts? Certainly. Uh, well, one of the things that you mentioned briefly in, in your uh, question there, uh, I like the word ruminating. To ruminate means to uh, almost obsess about something and think about it too much without there being any benefit to it. And uh, it that seems to be something that officers in particular, and especially type A personalities, they will ruminate on uh, an instance, on an uh, experience so much so that it becomes debilitating and there's no benefit to it. You know, when I went to that call and I talked to that gentleman for 10 minutes and it ended poorly, I needed to spend some time thinking about it, figuring it out, analyzing if I could have done better, asking all those questions. I went back and listened to the tape of me talking to that guy and I critiqued it and I learned some things. But at the end of the day, I have to be okay with what I did And once I'm done analyzing it, I have to put it down, I have to put it away, and I have to leave it. And it's very difficult for many officers to draw that line and go, you know what? I've analyzed it. I've thought about it. I know what I could do better. I brought my best to the situation, and now I'm going to leave it. What is for lunch? I need to go back to work. I need to go back to my life. I need to go back to my family, and I need to leave it in its file. It's not that I don't go back and look at it from time to time, but it's real easy to almost obsess over it and think about it so much that it becomes debilitating. And so an officer needs to find a way to process it, both cognitively and emotionally. That usually involves talking about it. For me, it also involves writing about it, uh, even if it's just for my own benefit. But to, to process it, and get it on paper and leave it seems to be a good way of doing business. And it also helps a person emotionally and psychologically. You make a great point when it comes to law enforcement and first responders um, and even security personnel that when these situations arise, it's a lot of people on the civilian side may not recognize um, what we're asking of our first responders and our officers because if you're working your day-to-day job and something happens, you have a serious incident at work, um, whether it be an injury or some type of HR issue, usually that person says, okay, I'm going home, or the boss says, okay, go home, take the rest of the day off, come back tomorrow, and gives them right. time to to calm down and, and, and settle everything out, where 
if you're a police officer, you're a first responder, a paramedic, a fireman, these situations may happen and you're expected to go right back to work, get right back in your patrol car, go right back into the field and do it again and do it again and do it again until your shift is done. Right. And, and that's something that can be very, very difficult for people to do. Now, one other thing I wanted to ask you was from a training perspective or from the perspective of either an FTO, uh, a sergeant, senior officer, you know, even senior leadership, what are some things that, you know, as an instructor that you can pass along to these members when they have somebody that if they, maybe they have an officer under their command that this situation happens to, what are some things that they should be looking at doing to help support their officers? Well, I'm the uh, clinical director for our critical incident stress management team, CISM for short, and it's a training and a way of intervening for emergency services personnel. Um, So to have someone who's trained in how to talk to an officer after a bad call on its own can be very helpful. If you train some of your police officers in how to help each other, then when they're out on shift, they can talk to each other over coffee, help each other process and debrief, and that on its own can help take care of our own. And then beyond that, Uh, If an officer or a a squad of officers has a bad call, then to sit that group down together and walk them through step by step, here's how you process this event. Let me give you a chance to talk about it, each of you. And naturally, as a group, they get to support each other. That debriefing also can uh, yield great help and great results in getting officers back to the place they were prior to the traumatic or stressful event. And if you have commanders and supervisors who encourage this culture, who encourage these programs and encourage their members to participate in it and even participate in it themselves, again, you start to build a culture that gets really good at taking care of each other, helping us kind of clear ourselves of the stress so that when we're ready, we can go to the next call. I think that's a great point is that there's, been a lot of change lately too, um, especially in the last couple years when it comes to officer mental health and kind of doing away with the stigma that, you know, it's okay that you don't feel okay after this happens. Right. Yeah. I've said in a number of instances, I want you to not feel okay because that is normal. You don't feel okay because you're empathetic, because you're compassionate, because you're a person. And I don't want a police officer to be a robot. I want you to be a person. Yeah, one of the things when I first started training as a defensive tactics instructor, one of the things that we did was we always talked about, you know, your SNS activation and all the things that happen to you physiologically. Yes. But there was never that component of, okay, so when this is done and we talk about, you know, PNS backlash and what your body does, we don't talk about how you're supposed to feel or how you might feel. It right. always, this is the physical. Um, so let's deal with that. And exactly. There was never the talk of, okay, well you may, you know, you may not be able to sleep very well for the next couple of weeks or months, or you know what, or maybe you're going to sleep a lot, or maybe you're going to feel like crap, or maybe you're going to always feel like you have, you always need to be doing something and you're hyperactive. There's so right. many changes that can happen to people. Are there any resources out there right now that you know of where people can kind of get that type of information? 
Well, I would send them to the uh, International Critical Incident Stress Management website, icisf.org, because that's what they're devoted to. And they even have some uh, online resources. And uh, one of those resources in particular goes to the point that you're making. Most officers know that they're having an adrenaline dump after a traumatic event. They know the physiological responses. They learn them when they're on the range. Um, But what about the other symptoms that go with it, like irritability and snapping at your children uh, when you get home and all these other kind of psychological, emotional and social symptoms that are normal reactions to such an abnormal situation? Yeah. Do you, are you a proponent of officers kind of bringing in their spouses or their significant others and giving them some of the tools when it comes to interacting and dealing with their spouse when they come off duty? Um, is that something yes. that you've worked with before? Yes, very much so. To talk with the officers and help them shift gears before they go home and to talk to the spouses. Uh, one of the things that we do at this department At the police academy, when the uh, new recruits are nearing graduation, we have a dinner and we bring in the spouses and loved ones of the uh, soon-to-be police officer, and I give them just a little 10-minute speech. Here are the common signs and symptoms that come along with seeing stressful and traumatic events and having to deal with that 1% of society that most people don't believe exists and having to deal with them over and over and over again. So if your loved one starts to get a little jaded and starts to get a little bit irritable, it might not be about you. It might be that they're starting to react to the uh, situations that they're called into over and over again. I think that's a fantastic thing to bring up, especially in that platform, because everyone's there. It's not right. It's not I'm isolating you um, and, and giving you information that I'm not giving somebody else. It's everybody's here. They're all hearing the same thing. Let's let's learn and, and use it. Um, yes, and let's get ready for what's coming. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, so Andy, let's talk a little bit about your book. Okay. What was your inspiration for, for writing this book? Well, uh, my inspiration, uh, it, it wasn't planned. Uh, you know, the first time that I went to a completed suicide and the first time I was on the phone as a negotiator, When I got home and I was having my own, holy crap, what happened (laughs) reaction to it, I sat down and I wrote out the thing start to finish just for my own benefit. And then after a while, and especially after having a number of calls where I'm like, you know, you can't make this stuff up. This is crazy. No one would believe this. I thought, you know, I should start not only writing it down, but maybe I should put it out there for other people to learn from because, uh, you know, People can learn from my bad day, and hopefully that'll help them maybe avoid having the same thing happen to them or give them something to go on as far as coping or overcoming or maybe some strategies for how to talk to somebody. And so then I was like, all right, well, let me compile all these stories and let me see about publishing it uh, because really my motivation was, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. Maybe, <laughs> maybe my stories can help somebody else. Yeah, one of the things I love about your book is you're not a, a police officer yourself um, and that you come right. from that academic background. You, you, kind of, you kind of tell the story in a little bit of a different way than you would expect to get, which I think allows the, the information in the book to be more widespread or more adaptable to 
to almost anybody in, in dealing with crisis situations, whether it be at work or even at home. Nice. I mean, that, I, I'm so glad it turned out that way. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't by design per se, but I'm, I'm glad that that's what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for, uh, for Dr. Andy Young? What's, uh, what's coming up in, in your life? Well, I started just recently writing a second book of stories from, you know, since the first book. It'll probably take me another year to uh, put all that together. I was invited to go to Scotland in May. I'm going to go to Scotland and observe their national hostage negotiator training course. They asked me to come and observe and critique and give them feedback. So uh, I get to go to Scotland and uh, I'll get to continue kind of going around to different conferences and, you know, sharing my stories and experiences and kind of putting out there, here's my two cents about how we can do this better or kind of what is the standard of practice in our field. I think that's super important is the sharing of knowledge, that communal knowledge that, listen, it's not, we have to get away from this insular way of thinking where it's, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to share my toys with anybody else. Um, and right. The whole purpose for this podcast was that I want to be able to give a platform to experts like yourself to, to share information with everybody around the US, around Canada and around the world that may not have the opportunity to attend these conferences. You know, sometimes if, if you're at an agency or an organization that doesn't have the budget to, to be sending their instructors and trainers to co- different conferences and, and courses, that this gives people a way to, to get that information, whether it be a, it's in a more of a short form, but hopefully something that they can use to, to better themselves and, and to learn a little bit more. So. Exactly. I'm so glad you're doing this. And for me, when I go to these conferences, uh, many times I'll share the stories about the ones that did not go well, um, because we can learn as much from those as we can, the ones that end up in books and the ones that are, you know, the textbook, great example of how I'm a superhero, uh, superhero. Well, we're definitely going to want to have you back on uh, when uh, when your new book comes out, or you know what, even before that. Um, there's oh, great so many things um, that even speaking with you today that just keep kind of popping up in the back of my head. And I'm like, oh, there's <laughs> <laughs> nice. You go down the rabbit hole on a few of these topics, right? So, for anybody listening now, um, if this is their first time, you know, learning about who you are and what you do, where can people get a hold of you? Where can they find you? Uh, well, my, I have a website for my book. It's www.drandyyoung.com, D-R-A-N-D-Y-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And you can learn a little more about the book. You can uh, see what my speaking schedule is. You can contact me if you would like. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great way to uh, network with people through the website. That's awesome. All that's going to be, uh, we're going to make sure there's links to your website right on the show notes page here. So if you're listening, you can kind of look at the description and click right on the link and check uh, check Dr. Young out at his webpage. Um, and we'll have some links for your books there so they can uh, purchase your books, whether it be hard copy or digital. Definitely a must read for anybody in the law enforcement, military security profession. It's an amazing book, amazing source of information. And uh, I just want to thank you for putting it together for everybody. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. I know, uh, like I said, I know you're very busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and hopefully you'll come back again. I would love to. Thank you. All right, Dr. Young, thank you so much. And we will talk to you again soon. Very good. Have a good afternoon.
Hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed our talk today with Dr. Andy Young. For those of you who didn't catch it, his website is www.drandyyoung.com. There's going to be links on the description and the show page for this podcast. You can check him out on LinkedIn. You can make sure you reach out to him on social media or through his website. And his book, Fight or Flight, will be linked to on, again, the description and the show notes page. Make sure to pick it up. It is an amazing read, and I know you guys are going to love the information in that book. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. We love coming to you every single week. We love bringing you these interviews with industry experts across the globe, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Stay safe.